Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, a podcast for health and wellness practitioners passionately committed to transforming our current broken disease-focused system. Your host, Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, is devoted to helping you get results with complex health challenges like autoimmune, hormonal imbalances, and chronic health challenges caused by nutritional and lifestyle-induced imbalances. Here's your host, Dr. Rita Marie. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for health and wellness practitioners who are passionate about making a difference. On today's episode, we're going to talk about thyroid health. And we're going to talk about how to boost the thyroid's metabolism in many ways, but one of those is a unique form of exercise. And I have with us today, Dr. Dennis Wilson. And Dr. Dennis Wilson, I first met quite a number of years ago at a restorative health conference, a restorative well medicine conference. And he was teaching a certification in T3 and using T3 therapy, as opposed to the standard allopathic medicine approach, which he was trained in to help people with thyroid function. And I met him there. We got to chatting. I ended up having him come in and talk to our group. And we've had a, you know, back and forth relationship since then. And I am excited to share some new stuff that he's been working on. So he identified Wilson's temperature syndrome and its treatment 30 years ago, which involves having symptoms of slow metabolism, having symptoms of altered thyroid function, but the lab tests all look pretty good, right? And they don't respond to the conventional T4 therapy. And it's completely reversed using, you know what, diet, exercise, and a lot more than that. And so we're going to talk today about a unique form of exercise that he developed. And we've got also with us his daughter, Allison, and she was like the first guinea pig on this specific form of exercise that has been found to uniquely shift thyroid function. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. It's an um, honor being here with you. Well, I'm super excited to have you here because I know you're, you know, you're very comfortable with teaching health and wellness practitioners because that's what you've been doing in teaching the Wilson's temperature syndrome certification for how many years? Like 10 years now? I think I took it like yeah. eight years ago. Yeah. Uh, more. I think it's, yeah, I think it's more than that. More than that. <laughs> so a long yeah. time. Mm. Yeah, I think it's great. And so, you know, we can go into a little bit about how you got interested in that because you were trained in medical school where you learned test the TSH. If it's high, put them on T4. Done. Right. And right. we don't look at anything. Everybody else is a hypochondriac or they're depressed or they get medication for constipation. But other than that, so how did you like see that maybe that wasn't working so well and develop your own approach? Well, there's, I had a lot of patients, a lot of doctors do. We have, I mean, almost every doctor has patients that have these classic symptoms of hypothyroidism. They have fatigue, depression, dry skin, dry hair, easy weight gain, fluid retention, itchiness, hair loss, losing the lateral third of their eyebrows, cold and heat intolerance, dozens more um, symptoms just like that that are classic for a slow metabolism. And the most vexing, perhaps, the one that probably drives more patients to the doctor or the practitioner more than anything else is the weight gain they know that there's something wrong because they were going along fine. And all of a sudden they've started to put on 
wait inexplicably and they're and they're thinking what in the world is going on here but if you ask them a lot of times their symptoms came on about the same time they went through some major stress so they get the symptoms and the weight and they'll mm-hmm. they'll gain a bunch of weight and so the doctor will say oh my gosh I know, I'm sure you have a thyroid problem because that's classic hypothyroidism and we all get the tests. And then to our, to our amazement, the tests come back normal. And so then it's like, then you have two choices to think at that point. You could say, well, I guess it's not thyroid because what I was taught in medical school says that if the test is normal, then it can't be a metabolism problem. Because we've been trained as doctors to, to measure metabolism with blood tests. And I found out later since then, I, I, I see that that doesn't even make sense. Like, uh, because blood tests don't measure metabolism. They don't measure, they don't measure body temperature and they don't measure CO2 production. They don't measure O2 consumption, which are all the scientific hallmarks of metabolic rate. I mean, a blood test doesn't measure any of that, but we've been thinking, mm-hmm. oh, We've been trained to think, oh, that measures metabolism. So anyway, you know, you have two choices at that point. You could say, well, this isn't metabolism. Or you could say, oh, well, I guess that maybe the blood tests don't measure metabolic rate. And and it turns out that I'm more in that school of thought. And I... I found uh, different ways to get the temperature up. And I've always been amazed at how how readily patient symptoms improve when their temperatures are normalized, or in other words, when their metabolisms, their metabolic rate is normalized. And it's really, it's really amazing to think that you can change somebody's body temperature. You can regulate their metabolic rate the way you would change the temperature on a thermostat in your house. I mean, you can change it. And most people, you know, don't realize that that's a possibility. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, so you're discovering that all these people have thyroid symptoms and they're not showing up on normal testing that you've taught and you and all the other hundreds of thousands of of medical doctors have been taught. And there's so many of these people that are falling through the cracks, right? That they're just so, oh, no, here's some Prozac, here's some Mela, you know, whatever their symptoms are, and they're not getting better. And so you decided to look at temperature, which totally makes sense, right? Like metabolic rate, temperature. And when you did that, I know what the answer is, but I'm going to ask you anyway, what did you find when you started to measure people's temperature? I found that the temperatures correlate exactly with their symptoms. And so much so that it dawned on me, I've become absolutely 110% convinced that your body temperature is a direct measure of your metabolic rate which is really obvious when we think about it because, you know, the faster your metabolism, the more ATP you, you utilize right. and the, the more energy is released and the higher your temperature is. And uh, it's really interesting because really we call them hypothyroid symptoms, and, but what they really are is low temperature sim- symptoms. They're low temperature symptoms. They're symptoms of a slow metabolism. So mm-hmm. if you have a thyroid problem, if you have a thyroid problem, that can lead to low temperatures. And if you have low temperatures, then you can have symptoms of low temperatures. So really hypothyroid symptoms are really low temperature symptoms due to an inadequate supply of thyroid hormone. 
But see, you can have an adequate supply of thyroid hormone and still have low temperatures. And if you have those low temperatures, you can still have low temperature symptoms. So what causes that? So if you have normal amounts of thyroid, say the thyroid gland is perfectly functioning, it's putting out the right amount of T4, it's not diseased, it doesn't have nodules, no cancer. How can we have this happening? Well, I believe it's part of a survival mechanism. I believe that our body's main mandate is survival. And so when you're threatened Mm -hmm. with extinction or, you know, one of the biggest ways you can die like from a survival standpoint is by starving to death. So like if your metabolism is slowing down because your existence is being threatened, that's almost like your food supply being threatened. So there's two ways you can manage that. Like if you were the body, you could say, oh my gosh, we're running out of food. We might run out of food. So there's two choices. We can either make ourselves stronger so we can better obtain food, or we're going to have to slow down and conserve what we have. It's just like how people manage their finances. You know, there's two approaches. Mm -hmm. You could say, well, we're really going to have to reduce our expenses because tough times are coming. Or you're going to say, wow, we're going to have to get a better income. We're going to have to get more money. And so there's two approaches. And so this approach with this low temperature, I think, is more the conservative approach the body takes and just says, wow, you know, things are pretty tough right now. So we better slow down and not use so so many of our resources. And so then your metabolism slows down, your temperature slows down and that's fine, but that's only one way of doing it. And the opposite we'll talk about later is this idea of, you can call it conservation mode versus productivity mode, but we also like to call it storage mode versus forage mode. So either you're going to forage for more food or you're just going to hunker down and store food. So like by doing this certain kind of exercise, you can signal your body to understand that, hey, we're not doing storage mode. We're doing forage mode. We're going to strengthen ourselves so that we can go climb that coconut tree so we can go you know, hunt down that hunt down that pig and, and, and plant those fields or whatever it is. So, wow. So I like this concept of storage versus forage. That's really unique. Nobody else is really talking about that. But stepping back to go forwards, because I want to hear more about how we're going to increase the person's metabolism. There's two questions that I have. One is, so when someone is slowing down, right? So there's threat, whether it's mental, emotional threat, whether in the olden days it was animals chasing us, whether it was not enough food. We don't see that a lot in our society because food is around 24-7. We actually see the opposite. And I want to talk in a moment about how that can affect the metabolic rate. But when we look at the conventional medical approach, right? So we go, oh, well, TSH is high. So let's give person more T4. So we're in where they're in this conservation mode and we give them more T4, how does that affect it short-term? But then what does that do long-term to that person's ability to maintain healthy metabolism? Well, that's an excellent question. And when I'm managing patients or consulting with doctors who are managing patients, I encourage them not to use T4 in patients who have, who have normal thyroid blood tests and they still have low body temperatures. So I mean, there are some people that have hypothyroidism. They don't make enough T4. And in that case, then 
then uh, T4 is not the, not the worst choice, at least in the beginning. But even, even then, if I had a hypothyroid patient, whether they're hypothyroid or whether they have Wilson's temperature syndrome, in other words, whether their TSH is high or whether it's normal, in either case, I personally wouldn't recommend giving them any T4 until their temperature is normal. And so T4 is a great hormone to use if, like you say, the body can utilize it. But a lot of times when people are in storage mode, when their their metabolism is slowing down and they're in conservation mode, one of the ways they slow down is they they reduce the conversion of T4 into T3. Their body doesn't mm-hmm. convert T4 into T3 as much as it could. And, and so your body is already not converting T4. And, and T4 is interesting because it can actually compete with T3 at the level of the cell. So, you know, when we give somebody T4, we're thinking, oh, the more T4, the more T3, you know, that's, that might be true depending on how well they're converting it. But the T4 you're giving itself could compete with what T3 they do have in their system. So there's some people, the classic story is that a person's going along and then you give them some T4 and they're, they, they get better for like two to three months and then they get worse again. And I know, yeah. I know there's practitioners on this, on this podcast that will recognize the story. And so then you give them t, more T4 and they'll get better for two or three months and then they'll get worse again. And then you increase the T4 and they get better and they get worse again until finally you give them T4 and instead of getting any better, they get worse right off the bat. Mm. And that's what I call pushing somebody too far in the wrong direction with the wrong medicine. And it's a really hard thing to explain to a patient because then at that moment they lose all hope because they saw their only hope was T4. And now even the T4 is not working and then they panic. So anyway, yeah. So what we do is we give T3 to patients until their temperature is normal. And, and, and when their temperature is normal, that's a sign of forage mode. That's a sign of you know, their meta- metabolic rate being reset, their metabolism being reset to the point that they shouldn't have so much trouble converting T4 into T3 because you've kind of taken them out of this mode where they're just conserve, 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 and you've, you've gotten them more into like productivity and more of forage and yeah. more of a better metabolism, better of a better pathway then and then we go with that and then later on you can add t4 and sometimes that's helpful but so i'm thinking you know back to what you just said about the t4 and it gets better than worse the better than worse and then stabilizes do you have a sense of what that mechanism is that's causing that to happen I do. It's not necessarily going to show up on blood tests, but my feeling is that, see, all this conversion of T4 to T3 happens inside the cells. It doesn't happen in the, it's so much in the bloodstream. This is something that happens intracellular. You can't necessarily see it. But just logically, we understand that T4 is converted to T3, and it's also converted into something called reverse T3, which is completely inactive. So to, 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 if your body is trying to slow itself down and trying to, you know, mute the effects That's of right. T4, it will, it will, it will use less. It will convert less into T3 and more into reverse T3. T3 being active, reverse T3 being inactive. But on top of that, reverse T3 also is so similar. Reverse T3 and T3 are the exact same molecule. 
they have like 30 different atoms. And those 30 atoms are exactly the same, only, you know, reverse T3 has three iodine atoms and T3 has three iodine atoms. The only difference is where those iodine atoms are placed in the active site of the hormone. And so what I'm saying is, even though T3 can occupy the receptor site for T3, reverse T3 can occupy the receptor site and can competitively inhibit T3. That's my belief. And, and so what I think is happening is <clears throat> when you just give more and more T3, you're just building up kind of like, and this is instantaneous. I mean, it's, it's happening in real time. You just have so much reverse T3 clouding or impinging or obstructing the mm-hmm. T3. So you're not really converting any more of that T4 into T3. You're just converting it into reverse T3. And then you're blocking, which is blocking what little T3 you're making. So I I would say based on my understanding of thyroid physiology and anatomy and biochemistry, that's exactly the conclusion that I come to. Right. And that's why it's, it doesn't really work long-term to just give people T4 Mm -hmm. if we're not down, looking at why this is happening. We're also not looking at why is the body not, if, if we aren't making enough, why is the body not making enough T4? Is it some nutrient deficiency? Is it some toxicity? Is it some stress? Like, what is that? Is it is it antibodies, which probably in 90% of people, it's some sort of autoimmune attack. But we don't look at that in conventional medicine. I don't mean we, you and I, or the people listening here necessarily, but I mean, in conventional medicine, it's just not taught to do that. Why look at antibodies when we don't have any other approach other than give T4, right? So just let's give the T4. I just want to ask in your experience, you've had a lot of experience with giving T3. Do you find that there's like the conversion slows down when we're actually supplying it or the production of thyroid? Like, is there a reverse inhibition, like an inhibited kind of a thing that happens? Yeah, the, the way I look at it is it's when you use T3, you're expecting the TSH to go down and sometimes even to undetectable levels. You expect the reverse T3 to go down, and that's really what you're yeah. after. Like if, if the T4 and reverse T3 is impairing T4 to T3 conversion, I'm happy to get rid of all that T4 and reverse T3 because I'm trying to get T4 to T3 production to come or conversion to be repaired and to go get back to normal. And so it, it, it might be really unsettling for some doctors to use T3 and, and see the TSH go to undetectable or to see the reverse mm-hmm. T3 plummet to zero or something like mm-hmm. that. But in my experience, it's completely been, it's been fine doing that. And it's really, and sometimes it's necessary to get somebody to back to normal too. And the, the idea of T3 therapy is to normalize their temperature enough to wean them off the medicine so they don't have to take it for life. That's a big difference between the conventional thought of T4 medicine where you take it for life. We're not talking about that. We're talking about using T3 for two to three months to, to reboot their thyroid system. And when I say reboot, I mean, just like with a computer, you turn their thyroid system down and you let all the pathways get cleaned out. And then you let the, the, their thyroid pathways come back up but they come back up in a clean environment and, and they have every opportunity to function normally again, just like on your computer. When you, you know, your computer gets all bogged down with extraneous programs that are weirding out and then you turn it off 
and 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 then all your operating system code comes back online upon line and it works fine. Things yeah. Like that. Yeah. That's a good analogy. I, I like that analogy. I also, you know, think that at the same time, and you're a big fan of this, we're looking at the environment. We're looking at the diet. We're looking at the stressors because if we don't clean those things up, we can reboot the system, but the same thing on a computer, you go and do all the sloppy stuff again, it gets bogged down again. So has that absolutely. been your experience as well? So what are some of the things oh, you do in that realm? And this will lead us well, right the, into the yeah. This will lead well, us right into the exercises part of that. So right, there's right, a little right. delay in it here. So so absolutely, you want to decrease, decrease the stress, and you know you want to get do everything that everybody knows they should. They should they should eat well. They should have high nutrient food. They you know have plenty of vegetables. They should have great nutrition. They should have wonderful sleep. They should have a positive outlook. They should get plenty of activity. And we'll talk about what, what can be done about activity. But in my experience, there's some things about activity. It's just like this. There's no adequate substitute for good nutrition. You have to have good nutrition because that's what your body runs on. And mm -hmm. it's like, there's no adequate substitute for good sleep when you are sleep deficient. And likewise, there's no adequate substitute for effective physical activity. And, and yeah. you can take all the medicines and drugs and, you know, there's no adequate substitute for a positive mental outlook or a healthy mental or psychological framework. So anyway, you can do, if you leave out one of these things, then, you know, then you can have problems. And one of the things right. we're leaving out a lot is physical activity. I think that if you ask the average adult, When's the last time they got can't talk out of breath winded? When's the last time they did that? You know, it might be decades. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about that and how you came to see the value of this and, and the exercise system that I was introduced to you probably three or four years ago. It's called faster size which I love. Mm -hmm. Right. And so mm -hmm. I would love for you to explain how does that affect the thyroid, how does it affect metabolic rate? And you mentioned earlier about mitochondrial function, which we all need to have good mitochondrial function in order to make good energy. So I want to hear about that. And then how do people do it? All right. Well, the, I, I kind of, kind of started on this because I was actually given an, an invitation to give a talk on, on, at, at a medical convention, a naturopathic medical convention. And they were saying, you know, we've, we've heard about your thyroid, but, uh, you know, we'd be interested in if you could uh, give us a, speak, a talk on some other subject. And I'm like, okay, how about innovative approaches to fat loss? And it's something I was interested in, but, you know, and they're sort of like, oh, yeah, that would be great. But so, so anyway, I had, to, I had to come up with a talk for innovative approaches to fat loss, and I didn't have a talk for innovative approaches <laughs> to fat loss. So anyway, I took an interest in it and I spent a year and a half studying and I was fascinated by what I saw because there's, there's things in the literature now that in the last 10 years that weren't available 30 years when I started working about on Wilson's temperature syndrome, that they didn't have that. Like there was stuff on high intensity exercise and intermittent fasting and, and even basic science and mitochondria and T3 and 
actin and myosin and physiology of the muscles and so on and so forth. Anyway, so as I started studying that, I was like, because there's a lot of doctors, even when they get their temperature to normal, there's some get their patients' temperatures normal. Sometimes their patients will lose 100 pounds. Sometimes they'll lose 30 pounds. Sometimes they'll lose all the weight they need. But sometimes they still have trouble with their weight. And I've seen that before. And I was like, what's wrong with this picture? There's got to be an answer. There's got to be a solution. Because, you know, we're seeing more obesity in the world. And and yet there's some people who are completely thin. You know, they're, they don't have any fat. So there's got to be... So anyway, I I started researching that and I saw so many different tie-ins from every different direction and every different cardiology and and psychology and so many different aspects. And they all pointed to this one simple solution and it just evolved and I couldn't believe it. But one of the things I found out is that mitochondria have T3 receptors on them. I mean, the way T3 works is T3, everybody knows that... um, there's T3 receptors in the nucleus of the cell. And the way T3 even works to speed up the metabolism is it goes into the nucleus and it increases the DNA transcription to increase the production of all kinds of proteins, not the least of which mitochondrial parts and components. And so then you, you, T3 increases the size and number of mitochondria. And not only does it increase the biosynthesis of mitochondria, but T3 stimulates the mitochondria of T3 receptors. And I realized that almost all of the ATP in our body comes from mitochondria. And our fat, our protein, our carbohydrate are all metabolized in the mitochondria to make ATP ATP. or to lead to Mm -hmm. the production of ATP. And uh, anyway, so it's just like, wow. And it turns out, do you know that in some animals, thyroid hormone doesn't even affect the metabolism? It doesn't have anything to do with the metabolism. Thyroid hormone doesn't have anything to do with the metabolism. In mammals or other? In other creatures. It might be plants. I don't know if it's mammals. But anyway, not in every animal does thyroid hormone affect metabolism, but it does in humans. So anyway, it may be that perhaps the most important way that T3 increases the metabolic rate is by increasing the size of the mitochondria the size and number of mitochondria, the biosynthesis of mitochondria, that might be one of the biggest ways. Well, it turns out that there's something else that increases the size and number of mitochondria dramatically, and that's lactate. And it makes sense, but lactate is the production of, is, is the product of glycolysis and glycolysis ramps up when oxidative phosphorylation in the mitochondria is overwhelmed. Like when your oxidative mm-hmm. oxidative pathways are overwhelmed, you have to revert to this anaerobic pathways. You have to revert to glycolysis. And when you are using that much ATP that you overwhelm your mitochondria, you build up acid in your muscles. And when you build up acid in your muscles, you start breathing faster because you, one of the ways your body has of getting rid of acid is by blowing off CO2. And so perhaps the best measure of how fast you're burning calories is how fast you're breathing. The faster you're breathing, the faster you're burning calories. And so, and the faster you're producing lactate, the faster you're generating lactate. And so basically it's like your body's saying, 
oh my gosh, Rita Marie, what are you doing using up all this power? You're using up so much power, you have just completely overwhelmed your mitochondria. So we're going to have to make more mitochondria tomorrow. So, uh, so it's like, it's like your body just gets like exclamation points all over the place saying, Hey, Rita Marie needs like two or three times more mitochondria than she had today because she's like really using up a lot of power. And so talk about productivity mode, talk about forage mode. So it's just like, Oh my gosh, Rita Marie isn't sitting around, you know, conserving energy. She's out there climbing a coconut tree. She's out there, you know, <laughs> doing whatever it takes to get her next meal. So, you know, we need to generate some more mitochondria so she can catch that rabbit or she can crack that coconut and get the food she's after. So. So it's interesting, right? Because this is something that as we get older, like I've heard the numbers, and forgive me if I don't get the numbers exactly right, but for every decade in age, we're losing like 10% of the numbers of mitochondria. So mitochondrial biosynthesis goes down as we age. So it becomes even more important as we age to overwhelm. Now, some people might be thinking, but I have these people who are couch potatoes and how am I going to get them to even get their breathing rate up like that? And how frequently, it sounds like every day we should be doing something to increase that. So every day the mitochondria are going, okay, let's do more. Kind of like if we want strong muscles, We exercise on a regular basis to increase the strength. Same thing, it's true like with this lactate threshold. Exactly. So Allison, what would you say to people who don't want to exercise or feel like they can't exercise? I'll just say, thank goodness it only takes five minutes a day. With Five minutes a day, he can do. Five minutes a day is totally doable. And we, we can talk more about this in a second, but... You know, faster size is the exercise that we've been alluding to and something that is also my dad's innovation. And the great thing about faster size is that you can get that out of breath, totally winded experience without even changing your clothes. You can do it sitting down or standing up and it all comes down to doing voluntary shivering. You don't have to be cold. You don't have to do a cold plunge. And it's also very gentle on your joints. People who have rheumatoid arthritis or bad backs, bad knees, they can do faster size without risking injury. So I'd say it's it's one of the most effective ways to exercise, especially if you have any kind of schedule limitations or health limitations. Yeah. So I want to hear more about this, but I can't shiver. I have a hard time and I want, I've still been trying to shiver when I'm not cold. I can shiver like crazy when I'm cold and I get cold easily, but I did the cold thing once, twice in one day, jumped into the cold pool after the hot tub, lasted less than 20 seconds and got out. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I wouldn't either. <laughs> but I have friends who do it every day. I mean, they literally put ice cubes in their bathtub and they do well, it. So how do we do it without that discomfort is what most people want to hear. And then I want a description that we can do to let people see. And we can actually, on the show notes page, if you can give us some sort of little one-minute video clip that people or a link to that people can click to to see it. I want to hear more about this because I heard you speak about this years ago. And I try it and I go, but that's not it. That's not it. I'm moving too big. I got to get... You know, and I just don't feel like I do it right. So, yeah, of course. 
So let's let's talk about how to do voluntary shivering. So you hit it right on the nose when you're talking about like movements are really small. So, you know, you can just imagine what do I do when I shiver? Well, you tense your muscles up. A lot of us don't realize that, but when you're cold, you kind of tense up and you oh, you want to kind of hunker down. Yeah. So tensing your muscles first is a very important piece to being able to shiver. And then you also do really tiny movements, only an inch or two in either direction, right? And so, you know, for those of us who would like to follow along, I'll just do our most basic exercise. And so it involves you stand up and you kind of act like you're jogging in place. But instead of lifting your whole foot off the floor, you just lift your heel off the floor. You're going to kind of bend your legs back and forth, just a couple inches in either direction. Same thing with your arms. You can kind of have them down at your side and you're just going to shiver those back and forth as well. And then to be able to get like really out of breath winded, you're going to do what we mentioned, tense your muscles and then shake as fast as you can. And for those of you who are watching a video, you can see I'm actually like my fists actually blur a little bit when I'm shaking as fast as I can. And then you just do that as fast mm -hmm. as you can for, for one minute. Now, I'll just demonstrate this for like 10 seconds so that you guys can kind of see and hear what it looks like when you do it to maximum intensity. So you shiver like this and you can actually see that my face is shaking a little bit. And just in a few seconds, I start to feel kind of out of breath. Ooh, okay. So I, I will say too, I have done faster stays for a few years now. So if you can't get to that intensity right off the bat, that's okay. Sometimes it takes a little practice, but you will be surprised as you combine this tensing your muscles, shaking them as fast as you can, and you do that for one minute, you will be really surprised just how tired you get, how winded you get. It'll feel kind of like you just sprinted 100 yards. And wow. it, this is how I entered my bodybuilding competition. And I think we were going to mention that at some point, but 10 minutes of faster size yes, a day was how I prepared for my bodybuilding competition. So I'm Dr. Wilson's daughter been a huge fan of him for a long time since I was born. <laughs> so, but I, I had a baby and I had gains like about 35 pounds with my pregnancy and dad kind of solidified his ideas around this whole faster size program within like, like right when I was about to give birth within two weeks before I gave birth to my baby, he's like, you know, you could try this if you want to lose some weight. And I said, absolutely. I'd love to, because I was really busy. I just started working, had a newborn moving across the country, trying to buy a house. Like I just didn't have a lot of spare time. And so I gave this a try, ended up losing 45 pounds and entered a bodybuilding competition, just doing faster size. Now that wasn't the plan. Wow. From the beginning, all I wanted to do was lose my extra baby weight, but the baby weight melted immediately. It, it, I lost it all in about three months, which I, I mean, I was thrilled. And then oh. with the, with the physique that I was starting to get, I was like, what can I do with this? Like, let's get creative here. And then I thought, why not try a bodybuilding competition? Which again, that was like super far outside of my comfort zone. Kudos to people who enjoy that. But like, it is very, like you get super low body fat percentage. I got down to like 11% body fat. And, but anyway, it was incredible. Like backstage, I think this is what really hit it home for me because I was backstage with the other competitors and we were talking about, you know, the preparation and they were all saying like, my husband just doesn't get it. You know, I'm in the gym like two or three hours a day. and He just thinks that's so much time. And 
I agree. That is a lot of time. And, and they were just, and then I also noticed their hands there. They had huge calluses on their hands okay, um, yeah. from all the weight that they've lifted. And like, I'm over here, Miss Baby Hands, because I haven't been lifting any weights. And I noticed a couple of them when we high five, they're like, what is going on? But and then I was thinking to myself, I didn't talk about this, because you don't want to be a brat. But I was thinking to myself, like, I've literally spent like 10 minutes a day preparing for this. And like, to, to get to a similar level of physique with people who trained like two or three hours, and you only train 10 minutes, that seems kind of like a steal of a deal. You know, it just seems kind of amazing. And yeah. I think that's when I realized, like, this is something that a lot of people would benefit from. And I want to help a lot of people incorporate faster size because the science behind it allows you to get these extraordinary results in, in just a few minutes. So that's my story. Wow. So here's the thing, you know, you guys who are listening who are health practitioners, how many times do you get, I don't have time to exercise. I have a bad knee, my shoulder injury. There's no way my, I have to be careful. I can't do hard stuff because of my heart or whatever other things we hear. You only did it for 10 seconds. And that breathlessness lasted a couple of minutes into your talk there. So it's clearly effective. And I did it the same time you did, and I didn't do it properly because I didn't get breathless. So I got to practice. I'm going to keep watching you. But the thing is that, yes, everybody can afford five minutes a day. I want to know what you did with the other 10 minutes because I want to enter a bodybuilding contest. I would like that physique. We'll post <laughs> her picture, her before and after at nine months pregnant. And then nine months later, there she is, gorgeous. And you were not like that before, right? <clears throat> you didn't have this bodybuilding physique before pregnancy. You're just like a normal person. Gotcha. I, yeah. I, uh, I, I've never done a bodybuilding competition before the one that I did with faster yeah. size. And uh, I had not religiously worked out for the previous like four years leading up to that. So <laughs> yeah. Wow. So it's very encouraging for us as practitioners to know all these people who were, were trying, were struggling to get their metabolism up. They're struggling to lose weight like that. The, the weight melted off. I love that. And you couldn't have done severe dieting because you were nursing a baby, right? You couldn't mm -hmm. have like gone on some calorie restriction type thing that no, it was really, no, no. Yeah. We, we don't really recommend like extreme calorie restrictions. And I didn't even count calories. I didn't count macros either. I tried to restrict like refined starches and sugars, like pastas and breads and right. cookies and stuff like that. And then I Basic tried to do, eating. yeah, yeah, pr pretty much. And, and just I ate until my hunger went away and then tried to push my hunger off with exercise. And this is one thing that dad hasn't mentioned yet, but this shivering exercise, one minute of shivering can push your hunger off for up to two hours because it releases so much stored fuel from your body in the form of carbohydrates and fat that it causes your hunger to go away because it's been satisfied. And that's one of the ways that it's so easy to lose weight with faster size because it replaces the need to eat more frequently by feeding off of your stored body fat. And so I think that's another way that it makes it easy if people are trying to lose weight. It's a nice way to manage your appetite. And so you're not going around hungry all the time in a calorie deficit, just, you know, oh, I wish I could have a cracker. Like, it's not like that <laughs> as much as, you know, I've satisfied my hunger with exercise. And now I'm going to get on with my day. Now you're going to get on with it. So you, you spend less time eating. It helps you to do more of the intermittent fasting type, you know, six hours between meals or whatever. And 
you get to do that without that discomfort of it, right? So you get the benefits of intermittent fasting, which are, you know, lowered glucose and lowered insulin levels and improved hemoglobin A1C and just overall better metabolism. You get the increased mitochondrial synthesis, which is huge, right? And that helps you uptake T3. And it's not just about your overall metabolism, like how many calories you burn. But when you do that, you increase the the efficiency of, of the organs and the glands, because now they're, they're effectively doing their job, right? Instead of being like deprived. And you're helping your body to burn more calories, right? You're just overall, it sounds like a really good deal for and, five minutes a and day. And I would add one more really big distinction. And that is when you're doing faster size, like you're going without food, a hallmark of that is your body temperature is going down. Mm-hmm. Your metabolism is slowing down. You know your metabolism is slowing down because your body temperature is going down. But with faster size, your body temperature doesn't go down. Your body temperature either maintains or maybe goes a little bit higher. So you're using faster size to maintain or increase your body temperature, to, to maintain your metabolic rate, to increase your metabolic rate. So imagine this, like everybody knows that when you starve, you might burn fat, but you also slow your metabolism. Well, how about this? How about burning fat without slowing your metabolism and without being hungry? So it turns out you can burn fat without being hungry and without slowing your metabolism. And so Allison and I often talk about it. It's like burning your body fat down like the wax in a candle, like you're just... (laughs) You're just burning off your storage. And like she says, it's like melting. You, you, and it, the thing that's so cool about it, too, is that it's unimaginable that it won't work. I mean, it has to work because that's the way the body works. What causes fat to go away? Cortisol, glucagon, epinephrine, growth hormone. You know, and what causes that? You know, faster size, you know, windedness, lactate. You know, and and fasting does that and freezing, you know, being cold does that. Anyway, you don't have to be cold to shivering and you don't have to feel hungry to burn fat. Yeah. Anyway, it's pretty cool. And you don't have to go like, I got to eat every two hours, like being a slave to the kitchen and the refrigerator. Right. So I want to go back to, you know, the shivering piece. Right. And there's this cold therapy is just such a big deal these days. Everybody's like talking about it. Is that part of the benefits that we see with that? And you're shivering and they're saying, stay in there longer. So you shiver more. What's happening there? Are they increasing mitochondrial biosynthesis and improving T3 uptake in the mitochondria? I would say that's a really big thing because of course, when you go in that cold water, like it's like your body is saying, oh my gosh, you know, we're losing calories here. We're losing a lot of calories. We've got to mobilize our fat. We've got to mobilize our, our glycogen. And so there's there's four hormones that go up when that happens. And they're the same four hormones that go up when you're fasting. And they're the mm. same four hormones that go up when you fasticize. They're the counter-regulatory hormones to insulin. Those are three different ways to accomplish the same thing. And so I guess the difference is, it's like, yeah, if you get in that cold water, you're going to get a signal to your body that you're losing calories, you know, and then you're going to be having to mobilize some stuff and your temperature is going to be dropping. And, you know, eventually you're going to start to shiver, you know, to, to help maintain your body temperature, to help maintain your metabolic rate. Well, 
That's true. That's one way of doing it. The other way is you, you can preemptively shiver. So like faster size is a preemptive thing that you can do instead of freezing, like, or in addition to freezing, let's say yeah. like I myself, actually, like I, I have a cold plunge and I go in there myself. So what I like to do is like, if I, if I faster size, if I warm up my metabolic rate before I go into the pl- cold plunge, you know, I can tolerate the cold plunge a lot better. Longer. And sometimes, yeah. sometimes I faster size while I'm in the cold plunge rather than letting myself get so cold to the point that I start to shiver, I shiver before I have to shiver. I shiver before I get so uncomfortable or get so frozen that I have to shiver autonomically or automatically. I preemptively do it voluntarily to keep myself comfortable before I get to that uncomfortable point. See, like you don't have to be cold to shiver. You can preemptively shiver. And it's like when you're done with a cold plunge, yeah, I, when I'm done with a cold plunge, I shiver. Even if I'm not shivering, I shiver preemptively just to warm myself up. You know, sometimes yeah. I won't even dry off with a towel. Sometimes I'll even go under a fan. And so talk about losing calories. You just come out of a freezing thing and you've got evaporative cooling, but you can overcome all of that with faster size. You can overcome wow. all that with shivering. Talk about some calorie dumps. Talk about <laughs> moving off some calories. So it's pretty cool. This is very cool. So what's the best way for our practitioners who are listening and whoever to do it for themselves, but also so that they can learn how to, and they can get their patients and their clients doing it. What are our best learning tools? Like for me, who I've seen you talk about it, I've seen you do it, Allison, but I try like, and I go, oh, I'm not doing it right. And I give up. Right. So what's the best way for us to get proficient at it? And also what's the best scheduling of it to incorporate it into where do we fit those five minutes a day? Well, that's a great question. And basically, you can look up faster size. We're on most of our social media platforms, just faster size. But if you do want to get proficient at it and you do want help incorporating this in your schedule, I highly recommend the faster size app. It's available on Apple and Google Play. That is something we've worked very hard to be able to incorporate into the busiest of schedules and also accommodate for health limitations. Like if you have Mm. an injury on your ankle, if you have an injury on your back, we can accommodate for those and give you a schedule that will work for you. And so that's something we have given. Rita Marie has a discount for faster size. And so she's going to be sharing that link 40% off. And then I know we've also had some doctors who would like to become like faster size partners for their patients. So in that case, you know, they can reach out to me at allison at fastersize.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N at F-A-S-T-E-R-C-I-S-E.com. And we can help them set up a program that they can give to their patients Share specifically. With their patients. But yeah, those are the tools that we've worked in place. We're, we're working really hard to make faster size something that can benefit people wherever they are in their fitness and health journey. And that's why we have some demonstrations on social media, because maybe people just want a little taste. Maybe they just want to see a little bit or... Maybe they want something a little bit more in depth, something that's going to help them really change their health. And so those are the different options that we have available. Okay. Do you have the bodybuilding faster size program? That's the one I want. (laughs) I want to do that one. I'm here doing half an hour a day of heavy weightlifting. I want to, you know, have a little bit, maybe less of that. I'll still do it, but maybe less of that. And I can do more of the other. 
I can hook you up. And I have not put in a bodybuilding regime in the platform yet. But now that I know that there's demand for it, I'll put one together. (laughs) All right. All right. I'll hook you up with some of my trainer friends and they may help. They may have some people who 